Tonight on Arena, we look back at the best of our author interviews from 2021. And welcome to Monday Night's Arena. I hope you've been enjoying the festivities so far and that Christmas has brought you all that you wished for. Now, while 2021 has been another strange year in many ways, it's certainly been a terrific 12 months for Irish fiction. On the way tonight, John Connolly delves into Serbia's checkered history in The Nameless Ones, the 20th novel in his Charlie Parker series. Lisa McInerney completes her raucous Cork trilogy with The Rules of Revelation. And later, Damon Galgut, South African author and this year's Booker Prize winner, tells us about his novel, The Promise. But where better to start than with Marion Keyes, the best-selling author who went online nearly 12 months ago with four lectures on how to write a novel. When I spoke with Marion at the beginning of 2021, I started by asking her how this all came about, given that she herself has never done a creative writing course. You know, I didn't overthink it. It was, um, you know, it was the start of January. We were back into severe lockdown um, it's a grim, grim month anyway. And January is always a time when people think about doing things that they might have always wanted to do. Um, but obviously, you know, they're not going to be able to go out to night classes or anything this year. Mm. So, yeah, I just thought that the one thing I have is a lot of practical experience that I've learned on the job. And I just decided that I would do four sessions on Instagram Live um, on successive Monday nights. And I suppose, I mean, I take a very practical approach to writing. I think an awful lot of people are confused. They think novels are something that are sort of magical and that they they almost write themselves. And they think there's an awful lot of um, mystique about the writing process. And my learned experience is that it is nothing but hard work, really. And on the one hand, people are delighted to hear that, you know, that there is no magic formula, there is no kind of big secret. And on the other hand, they hate me for saying, (laughs) sit down and write it. If you do not write your book, it will not get written. And the thing that people, I find it very odd that people assume that their first attempts at, you know, a paragraph or a chapter or whatever, when it's nothing like the polished, Mm. perfect things that they see in published books, that they don't make the connection between the words in the perfect already published book have been edited and and reworked and moved around and deleted and put back, you know, until the author is blue in the face. (laughs) They expect that like their first, their first go should come out publishable. Yeah, Yeah, um, I'm interesting that you say until the author is blue in the face. That sounds uh, as if you're speaking as an author who is relatively experienced in blue face syndrome. How difficult, yeah. is, how difficult is it? Well, I mean, it's not difficult, Sean. I mean, I love my job, but I want to write, especially characterization. it's very important to mm. me. You know, I want to write nuanced, interesting, believable, you know, believably flawed people. And that's a kind of a, it's a challenging balancing act because I want my characters to be, most of them, to be likeable. But you can't have genuine people who don't have ugly parts to them. I mean, we all have parts of ourselves that we're ashamed of. Um, You know, we all have secrets that we think we're going to take to our grave. Um, And so I work hard at that, you know, 
trying a characteristic, taking it away, giving them a life experience, seeing if that were, you know, it's a long process yeah. of trial and error is what it is. And, um, and there is nobody really to say, okay, that works, you know, or to say, yes, go with that. You know, on a day-to-day -day basis, it's the only arbiter is me. And that can be, that can be, I suppose, difficult or lonely yeah. at times. Um, but all I'm saying is, you know, this is, it's not something that's impossible. But it is something that does take work. Work and time. And, yeah, and, and yeah, it's one and of the that, things. And that's fine. Yeah, and, and and it's one of the things you say very early on in that first episode uh, of the of the vlog, Marion. You, you say it's your book. It's it's not your mother's book. It's not your sister's yeah. book. It's not your brother's book. It's not the guy or the the woman or man who are all sent to you. Are you really gonna Are you really gonna do that? Yeah. that you, you think yeah. that's gonna work? It's none of their. They don't own the book. You own the book. Yes. And once a person realises that, that they don't have to make it like anybody else's book. And if they also go into their writing with the pretense that nobody is going to read it except themselves, it gives a person so much freedom to explore things that might feel taboo to them or that they would be too shy to write or just too embarrassed if they thought of their mother reading it or, you know, the person oh. who sits next to them at work. You know, it's yours. It is only for you. And right now you are the only reader. So let go, you know, write what you truly want to write and write as if you have no fear of failure, because that's another thing that holds people back. They think, oh, I don't know, that wouldn't, I don't know, would people get this or whatever? Like, it doesn't matter. You know, what I'm trying to do really is give people delight mm. in doing something creative rather than regarding it as something monetizable, which I think corrupts the process so much. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, uh, there is that whole idea. Oh, uh, I'm going to sit down now and I'm going to write my bestseller and that's going to be wonderful. I won't have to worry what's what's working from home. Who cares? It doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> I'm not going to have to worry about that anymore because I'm going to be so successful. Yeah. Is it important that actually you just really do this for yourself and wherever the novel goes or wherever the writing goes, let it go there. Don't be thinking about pro uh, the product before you're even halfway through the process. Absolutely, Sean. I mean, I think we can look at kind of books that have broken through and have become like real surprise bestsellers. You know, like unusual books, like say, for example, you know, the Adrian Mole books. If Sue Townsend had decided that she was going to be, write a bestseller by writing what everybody else wrote. Mm. It, it, it wasn't going to work. But like she took a punt. She went out there with her like her own, her unique idiosyncratic voice. And she created a character that people adored. But if she hadn't taken that risk, that would never have happened. Um, you know, I think it's very, mm. very important that um, that people step back from what they think a bestseller is. Because, you know, as my friend Louise O'Neill says, you know, if if people knew the formula for what a bestseller was going to be, yeah. then publishers would only ever publish bestsellers. bestsellers. Yeah. Um, but like, but publishing doesn't work like that. And readers aren't like that. Readers take unusual books to their heart. Um, but it's not something that you can ever plan for. It, it, it is in no way scientific. Let, yeah, me, let me ask you some of the specifics because you you really do get into it, the nuts and bolts of things, which I thought it was was one of the really attractive things about the episode that I watched in particular. 
uh, we we were talking the other night here in the programme about an Australian writer, Chris Hammer, who's written a, he's a, he's oh, written yeah, a book yeah, called Trust. Yeah. And, and he, he has a term where he says, some writers are plotters and some writers are pantsers. And pantsers yes. are people who write by the seat of their pants. Seat of their pants, yeah. <laughs> so which are you and does it matter when it comes to writing? I'm a pantser and it absolutely doesn't matter. You know, I have friends who know exactly what's going to happen in every single chapter before they write the first word. And they need that framework. They need that that security. That for me, I feel like I'm, start, I'm going to start hyperventilating. It sounds like I'm, going to, I'm filling in my census form. I mean, there's no freedom in that. There's no surprises in it. And the thing is, if you create your characters well enough, if they are nuanced enough and interesting enough, the, the, the appropriate plot will appear. Mm. Um, and I think the idea of rules should be done away with. Like, you know, people were coming with all these things of like, how many words should there be to a chapter? You know, and, and in what, in which chapter should you begin your final <laughs> climactic scene of the novel? And like, I have done none of those. Yeah. I, I knew nothing about those things. And it really saddens me. Or people want to know, you know, how much percent of the book should be dialogue? Should like, I haven't a clue. Yeah. You know, yeah. Th- those rules are only holding people back, I think, yeah, rather than be, because they're not rules. I mean, I've never heard of them. Yeah, you can't you can't measure a book in, in those forms. But one thing no, you can you measure, you, one thing you can measure is the the number of people that have been tuning into you. Five and a half thousand people live. I mean, uh, for a vlog, that is a huge number of people. But even more impressive, eighty thousand people tuned in afterwards. They 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 yeah. you, you put them out live on your Instagram on a Monday night and on your own YouTube channel. Um, yeah, like eighty thousand people. That's a lot of people yeah. who, who's, who are interested in writing books. Uh, I mean, it's we're in a pandemic. Like, uh, you know, people have nothing to do. But, mm. I'm, you know, I'm happy because, like, if people are getting pleasure out of it, and I've been putting um, writing prompts up every single day on both my Instagram and Twitter, you know, and I've given daily, daily mm. challenges. What's the exercise you have for tonight? This is one on character. It is, yeah. We're doing characterization this week. Um, so Tuesday, people, I asked people to put together a list of 20 characteristics for, you know, a character that they're going to write. And today um, I gave them a fairly easy um, starter to write a scene of about 400, 500 words where their character, whoever they are, has just received some kind of uplifting news after a spell of kind of really grim bad fortune. Hmm. Uh, tomorrow's one is going to be trickier. It's, it's, it's a moral dilemma one tomorrow. But I think for people who have never written or people who've never really thought about how one creates a character in a book, it's a good way to learn because a lot of people have this thing that like the characters spring fully formed from some magic place in the universe. You know, it comes via the universe through your head and out, you know, onto your, your keyboard. It absolutely doesn't. You have to build a character like you would build a wall. It's trial and error. It's bits and pieces, you know, and it's hard work. And I guess what you have to do in in the case of a character, say, for example, is that maybe you put them into 25 different situations, one of which might make it into your final uh, novel or or none of which might make it into your... Exactly. All the time you're you're digging, looking for to find more more and more out about them. Yeah, it's information. Like, exactly, you know, None of the 25 situations might work, but you all, would you know then at least what your character isn't? Um, yeah. And I mean, for <laughs> me as a pantser, that's how I find out who people are. 
the other question that I think is a very important one that you that you address in in the, the the episode that I watched as well is this idea of point of view. Who who's mm. telling the story here? Whose story is and how are they telling their story? That's a, a vital aspect to get or, or to play around with to come to decide what way you're going to do it. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you decide to go with a first person narrative, it's I mean, it's chat. It can be chatty. It can be engaging. Like there's a real. Um, intimate bond between the writer and the reader. But it also means that it's very limited because the the narrator can only tell you what they know. And if they're if they're human, which they usually are, you know, th- their knowledge about what's going on around them is fairly limited. Um, whereas if you go with third person, you can go with an omniscient third person who knows everything. Mm. Um, that that doesn't attract me as much. Um it, it, it often comes across to me as, you know, as quite kind of a smug know-all type of vo- a voice. But it's entirely down yeah. to the writer. I mean, that's the beauty of it that you, you know, or you can do as I've done in some novels is, you know, to have three main characters and, you know, one as a first person and the other two are, there's a phrase that the, the creative writing students were using where it is a third person, but you're inside their head. Um, so it's it's sort of a first person, third person mashup. Marion Keyes there on her Insider's Guide to Writing Fiction. Next tonight we go on a tour around Europe in the company of John Conley and his new novel The Nameless Ones. It's the latest instalment in his long-running private detective series featuring Charlie Parker. This time, however, Parker plays something of a minor role in the action, while his associates, Angel and Louis, crisscross the continent in pursuit of two Serbian war criminals. Once in a while, John is happy to allow Parker to lie fallow. Some books are suited, better suited to him than others, I think. I, you know, I wanted to write, I, I have a, a, a weakness for globetrotting international thrillers, the kind that you read getting on and off planes. And I had begun this long before lockdown and COVID. And when it happened, it suddenly seemed like a piece of science fiction that you could have people jumping on and off aeroplanes without a care in the world. And yet I thought, you know, actually in a time when nobody can go anywhere, there is something pleasantly escapist about that. And I think one of the things that, that that awful period that we're coming out of, I hope, taught us all is, is the value of escapism, the value of something that takes you out of the world that you're living in, whether it was the rush of nostalgia people had for friends or shows that they remembered from, from a time when, when everything seemed much more innocent or the pleasure of picking up a book that simply takes you out of your world. And, and there's, you know, I sometimes think we're very hard on escapism uh, and yet there's a real pleasure in picking up a book that has no purpose other than to entertain you really. Well, now, you do more than entertain us here. You frightened me, certainly, once well, or you're twice. You're a tender and delicate flower. Every, everybody <laughs> says that, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll come back to whether I'm tender and delicate in a minute. Uh, let me clarify then. Did you have to, because I thought, poor John, he couldn't go anywhere. And he was writing all of this during lockdown and he couldn't do any of this research in Vienna. He couldn't do any of this research in Paris, in London, in all of the cities of Europe, effectively. Did you, did you actually get to do yeah, a bit of travelling around? It was the, the research had been done prior to, to all of this awfulness happening. So um, I had, I was fascinated. I'd been asked to, to visit, to go to a talk, give a talk in Vienna. And that's a hop to Serbia. And I thought, my God, you know, this is the perfect opportunity to do, to do this little bit of research. And it's quite a strange country. It's it's not a country that has a lot of Western tourism. It's not somewhere that suddenly strikes people will go mm. to Serbia it, because it has a kind of strange reputation and one that's not entirely unjustified. Um, you know, you arrive at from the airport and 
Um, there are Serbian flags lining the motorway. You go for a walk in the park and there are stalls selling Vladimir Putin football shirts in Serbian colours. Um, you know, this is, it will be really interesting as it, as it moves towards EU accession to see what happens with this country. Because uh, the driver that I had, um, he came up with the best summary of the Balkan conflict, which he said is, you know, he said, you know, um, a lot of bad things happened and, and, and we were responsible for most of them, which seemed to me a very, a very apt yeah. summary. But it's, it's quite strange when you go, there isn't, one of the things I do when I go to a country like that is, it, you know, you try to go to museums, you try to go to places where you might get a sense of how they view their own history. And there isn't really a historical museum in Belgrade, there is a military museum. And the military museum covers really every atrocity visited on the Serbs um, up to the, the end of the Second World War. And then Tito dies. And there is nothing from the death of Tito until they begin sending people on UN peacekeeping missions in, in, the, in the early part of this century. There is no mention of the Balkan conflict. Wow. It, it simply has doesn't been exist. It doesn't. And yet, at some point, everybody will raise it very tentatively with you. Mm. But, but after, not immediately, and, and, and certainly they're quite uncomfortable with it. But they, there's a lingering sense of injustice. Was this, again, this was something that I wondered, whether the Balkan conflict had been something that you had, that was scratching away at the back of your head for a long time as a potential starting point or a potential, you know, core area of the novel, or... Were you writing this and the, the Balkan conflict presented itself? How no, the, the two were together. Um, one of the things mystery fiction is always interested in is the impact of the past upon the present, the sins of the fathers being mm. visited on the sons. It's that part, yeah, the, the Faulkner quote, you know, the past is never dead, it's not even past. Um, and I think what happened when, I mean, I don't think any of us, I, I would have been in my early 20s when, when this conflict began. I don't think any of us ever thought we would see that kind of warfare in Europe again that kind of tearing apart of a society, the idea of ethnic cleansing, people behind barbed wire in concentration camps. You know, we did not think that would ever happen again. And suddenly it had manifested itself because, like I said, there were these lingering grievances, not just going back to the Second World War or the First World War, but even further back mm. than that. And I think the Serbians made a very deliberate decision when, when they put people behind barbed wire in camps. They were sending a message. And what they were saying was, during the Second World War, the Croatian side with the Nazis, our people were put in concentration camps. Incred and and the, the, the Croatian Nastasi, it's one of those terrible things where you say, say what you like about the Nazis, which always sounds like a terrible way to begin a sentence. Um, but, you know, what they did was the Nazis industrialised human destruction. They wanted it done as quickly and efficiently as possible. The Nastasi didn't want to do that. The Nastasi traded on cruelty. Yeah. And all of the, these memories remained. And what Tito had done was to say to all of these these different ethnic groups, I don't care what your problems are with each other. You know, if you have a problem, you'll now have it with me. And so he tamped them down. And when he died, all of these fractures reappeared. Um, and I found that fascinating because I got to tie into something that recurs again and again in crime fiction, that fascination with past sins. Well, now, um, getting back to you, your accusation of my being a delicate flower. <laughs> I'm I just saying what people say. <laughs> you know, it's not an accusation. I defy anybody to read uh, any section of the book that has the name Radovan or Spiridon Vuxan in it. If you read a chapter where these two brothers are present, you will not, you will, your blood will curdle at what they, particularly Spiridon, what he is capable of. Yeah, I, I, one of the difficult things to do in a book is, is, and I don't know whether I succeeded, was that you kind of, there's a little part of you that's almost rooting for the bad guys. 
But what they're like rats caught in a trap. They want mm. to get back to Serbia. That route has been cut yeah. off for them. So they're stuck in Vienna trying to negotiate through their lawyer a way that they might be able to get home and realising their enemies are drawing closer. And they try to find every way out of the trap. Any way they can, they try to take. And, and there's almost a sense of this, this animal desperation to them, which I wanted. And, and this, this lawyer who realises that his fate is, is tied up with them. Um, and then also, I didn't want to... One of the things I wanted to avoid was having something that, that I've learned that is, is best avoided, is to have long sections where people reflect in italics about the war. You know, I, I, the minute I think a reader of fiction mm. sees italics, they think, here is something inessential. Here is something that, that I don't need to read. And so you're very gently putting in information and you're trying not to linger on atrocities. Often these things are referred to in glancing or, or there is a scene where a man watches blood dripping through through floorboards and he realises that actually what's happening up there is so terrible that the ceiling yeah. can't take the blood. Um, and that was that was taken from um, an incident that I remembered about Klaus Barbie in Lyon when when the, the, the Gestapo set up their, their headquarters in Lyon. At one point, the, the, the root, the ceilings bled. They couldn't take the amount of blood that was being shed. So, so you can do... You, uh, when I was younger, I thought I, I had to beat people over the head with violence and say, look, look at this, look at this dreadfulness. Now I realise you can do much more by just having a man trying to move his chair so that blood doesn't fall on his head from the room up above. And what you do, which I think makes it manageable for the reader, is that you, you give that in, I suppose, maybe 10 or 12 chapters, but all the time interspersed with something that gives, gives you a chance as a reader to take a breath and say all right, I'm glad I'm out of that room for a while. And then, oh, no, here I go. And yeah. go, well, and go back you know, into it again. But, to, there has to be humour and there has to, as you say, yeah. that, this this is not about inflicting suffering on the yeah. reader. That word I used earlier, escapism and entertainment, I'm very conscious of those things. And yet it's a weird thing that we are entertained by. We like murders. We like thrillers. We're, people are, are wrapped up. I know my own kids are wrapped up with the two Sophie Toscan Duplantia documentaries. We have this fascination and it's not simply that we take a step and we look at it objectively and think I'm looking at this through the prism yeah. of law and justice. We do it because we get a frisson from it. And so it is an odd thing for readers. When, when, when I get the finger pointed at me sometimes as a writer who, who produces occasionally violent thrillers, I do point out that I, I don't go around to people's houses, sit on their chests, read it aloud to them and then demand 20 quid in return. People make a conscious decision yeah. that they, they actually want to read this. Yeah, OK. And I will admit that even though I found the scenes difficult, I kind of couldn't wait to get back into the room either at, a, at another level, which I, it plays into exactly what well, you're saying. Well, maybe there's hope for you, yeah. yeah there's something in us that, <laughs> that wants to see that. But I guess that this is your way, those two brothers, this is your way of actually saying, this is how we reflect on the war. Because these two brothers, Radovan and Spiridon, Radovan is kind of, he's the clean one, if you like. He's the, 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 the Teflon brother. <laughs> Nothing sticks there. And yet he, he orchestrated, during the war certainly, he orchestrated an awful lot of things. Uh, Spiridon did the dirty work, uh, but Radovan did the, uh, did the kind of orchestra uh, orchestration behind it. But these two brothers, they're reflecting on the war by what they're doing today because they're looking for a kind of revenge or are they looking for something perhaps a little bit more noble than revenge? I think they are. I, I, what we sometimes forget about Serbia is that it was a great imperial power for much of its for much much of its history and and when the archduke ferdinand was killed at the beginning of the, the well, before the outbreak of the first world war it provided an excuse for the the austro-hungarians um and and the pushes essentially to stamp on serbia and to curb all of that and yet there is this lingering memory when you go around this country you see these extraordinary fortresses 
that the Serbians built. Um, and they have this memory of fighting against the Turks, of being occupied in this very brutal occupation, and then again fighting against the Germans. And, there, you know, I... I it was a country that I didn't know a great deal about until I went there. And, and I, I, I went in conditioned, I think, by an awful lot of what I had seen in my 20s and what I had read. And, and, and the dreadful and undeniably dreadful things that the Serbians did during the Balkan War. And yet when you go there, you recognize that this is a cycle that similar atrocities and worse were inflicted upon them for a very great deal of time. And you wonder what scars that leaves on the psyche of a country. And it will be, this this EU accession will be very interesting for Serbia because Serbia, as far as I'm aware, is still regarded as a captured economy, which means that it is corrupt from the top down. And you don't have to be very long in Serbia before somebody tells you that, mm. you know, why are we trying to be honest when everybody who rules this is patently dishonest? Mm. Um, and a lot of this... A lot of these scars haven't healed. A lot of these fractures remain. Um, and so um, it's, it's, we're, we're in for a very interesting period, I think, when, when the Serbians enter. Because I think what we hope is that by entering the EU, we will be in a position, if should something happen again, to at least intervene in a more effective way than we did uh, at the end of the 1980s. Yeah, because you, you do visit uh, Srebrenica and the UN Security Council Resolution 819 and what happened in that city. And you, you specifically mentioned Ratko Mladic and those involved. Yeah, and all him. of these things, I remember, we've just been watching, you know, these trials again. This has gone on for decades. And, and I think what was terrifying about it was that we were simply unable or unwilling to do anything about it. There was, it was a little bit of both. Um, you know, it does mention that the Dutch battalion who had to abandon Srebrenica were under orders to do it. You know, had they stayed, they would probably have been massacred. You know, they would have probably died alongside everybody else. Their their supply lines had been cut off. They were under bombardment. Um, and yet, you know, I know from reading about the, the Dutch soldiers who left, they, they have this lingering sense of guilt about it, that some of them feel they should they should have stayed. You, you give us a character who, who says precisely that. Yeah, you know, we, sh we should have. That was what we were, we were supposed to do. I should have died nobly. I yeah, I should have stayed with them rather mm. than living with this guilt and... And maybe that guilt is shared across across Europe and across NATO. Now, we, we've only spoken about the Serbian because there's a whole other side. We, we mentioned that Charlie has a little walk-on part, but it, the Louis and Angel, are actually, his sidekicks, are much busier in this novel than than usually. Well, so they were they have been busy in previous novels too, but they're particularly busy here, aren't they? They they are. It was a it was a chance to to look at two characters who, when I began writing, were essentially just kind of comic relief. They were a way of of showing a lighter side of Parker and have become more interesting to me mm. as a writer uh, as I've gone on um, because there is a sense of a dawning morality to them. That was John Conley speaking to me about The Nameless Ones, the 20th novel in his Charlie Parker series. We'll be back with Lisa McInerney after this break. Welcome back to Monday Night's Arena where we're looking back at some of our favourite author interviews from the past 12 months. One of the most anticipated novels of the year was The Rules of Revelation by Lisa McInerney, the final act in her award-winning Cork-based trilogy that includes The Glorious Heresies and The Blood Miracles. These comic novels follow the story of Ryan Cusack, from young drug dealer in 2010 to his current incarnation as singer-songwriter with the band Lord Urchin. Lisa took us back to when we first met Ryan as a 15-year-old tearaway. He is, I think, very much the, the the heart of all three books and the character I suppose I hope that a reader would be most interested in because he does do most of the heavy lifting, I think. So in The Glorious Heresies, we meet him, he's just turned 15 and, 
you know, he's he's kind of he's his mum is dead and he's living with his dad who has problems with alcohol abuse and you know Ryan has taken an awful lot of that on his shoulders and he's also decided that a good way for him to make money would be to become a baby drug dealer essentially um, probably not the best decision anybody's ever made <laughs> no. but can we blame him he's 15 he's an idiot mm. so it continues on in the blood miracles we meet him again he's 21 20 going on 21 there and it, the, the kind of all these bad decisions he's made are really kind of culminating in some sort of, I think, mad thriller like Dash where his life is literally on the line. And then we meet him here again now in the Rules of Revelation in the last book and he's he's just turned 24 and he considers himself 24 to be quite old and wise at this stage, <laughs> like we all were when we were 24. <laughs> and he's decided now he's he what he wants to do is he's, he's always had this kind of musical talent and what he wants to do now eventually is to, to actually put it into practice. But... Will Ireland forgive him? Will Cork forgive him for all the, the kind of carry on mm. from when he was younger? So that's that's the question we're going to answer. Yeah, that's the one that will be answered for <laughs> us in, in the third book, for sure. Um, it, his difficult start in life, you know, as you say, his mum is dead by the time he's a teenager and, and he's living with his father. Very difficult situation. And lots of younger siblings, you know, a, a family that have plenty of challenges and with the father addicted to alcohol, rather feckless in the way he, he treats mm. most of his life. Ryan, uh, to what extent were you looking at this idea of how Ryan can stay being Ryan Cusack from Cork and yet try to get beyond the difficult start that he had? Yeah, I mean, that that's the interesting um, thing for a character. When you get a character like Ryan, because I've, I've been with him now for so long and he's mm. kind of led me into some strange places. You can give him all sorts of advantages. You can give him talent. You can give him opportunity. But then as the writer, you're almost following to see what he will make of these. Op- will, you know, will he will he take the the this path or this path and see what happens? So, I mean, that's that's been that's been the fun thing with him, really, to see now at the end of it, how he's going to do, what he's going to manage, mm. what he's going to do with himself. He's also been, uh, now he hasn't been living in Ireland for all that time, but the Ireland of 2010 and the Ireland of 2019 are rather different places, we would have to say. Oh, absolutely. Good Lord. I mean, when I was writing The Glorious Heresies, so The Glorious Heresies came out in 2015, but it, it starts in mm. the year 2010. And you're talking about just, just post-crash Ireland there. And it felt to me when I was writing it, like this is an Ireland that's quite unforgiving this is an Ireland that's quite kind of lost patience almost, lost its way in terms of how it looks after its own. You know, it, it felt very cold and very judgmental to me when I was writing. And then you think of the Ireland of 2019, you've just come, up, come past these two big referendums that kind of changed everything mm. in Ireland and gave people a sense of ownership about this country that I think we had been missing in the years prior and the few years prior. We suddenly felt like we had power and optimism and if, you know it, it's a completely different Ireland I was writing about and that in itself was interesting you know you take this character who has been judged by the people around him for so long you bring him into this new Ireland and you say well let's see you now how you get on you know is Ireland even going to have a place mm. for you now because you are kind of like a, a representative of its grittier or more unpleasant side and Ireland now is like oh no no we're 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 moving forward, you know. The other interesting thing that I think it allows you to do, I was struck by the character of Mel, who mm. kind of a peripheral character really in the first book. But mm. when, when it comes into um, uh, the rules of Revelation, they are a, a much more important character. And my use of, of they there is important. 
Yeah, so Mel started out as, in, in the Glorious Hearts, we, we would have seen Mel as Linda, who was uh, the daughter of Tara Duan, who was, I think, the big the big villain of the Glorious Heresies and possibly still the big villain um, of the, the, mm. the three books. And Mel has gone away to Scotland to live with her dad and has become, or has tried to figure out who, who they actually are and has decided, well, maybe I'm not a girl, actually, but am I, I don't think I'm a boy either. I'm not really sure what I am. And that was an interesting thing for me to capture. I think we've been having these very interesting conversations around gender in Ireland very recently. Certainly, like I have a teenager, I have a 19 year old who started off as a girl and is now very much a boy. So we've been having all of these amazing kind of conversations about gender and where we're, you know, what the the limits are and what how we can push them and how we can kind of be more ourselves and feel more authentically ourselves. What does all of this mean? No answers, of course. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're just trying to figure it out. So I was writing Mel. That was kind of what I wanted to capture. I think another another kind of symptom, I suppose, of this new optimism I felt in Ireland, this new kind of thing of moving past binaries, moving past kind of class structures, moving past limitations, all of this kind of stuff. The other thing that you do, and this is across the three novels, Lisa, and it's one of the absolutely gorgeous things about it, is the authenticity of the patois and the Cork accent. Mm. And, and now, and you're not from Cork, but you, no. you, you're a bit of a blow in there for a while. And uh, clearly, don't attack me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not even a blow in in Cork. <laughs> but, um, you know, clearly your ears were wide open when you were at college in Cork because you have, well, to my ear at any rate, you have it down pat. Oh, I'm glad you said that. Like, But I think sometimes you have to have the little bit of the outsider's perspective to really hear mm. the kind of idiosyncrasies and the kind of these, these beautiful little patterns, no matter where you are, no matter where you've moved to. And Cork, for me, as people probably remember at this stage, because I bang on so much about it, I moved down there at 17. I had just turned 17. Like I turned 17 in, the, in August and I started UCC in October. So I was very, very young. And move down there and kind of, that's a dangerous age to be going anywhere, isn't it? Like to be in this new city and kind of on your own and kind of figuring out who you are and stuff. And that's one of the things I could hear. I used to walk around Cork City and I would hear the patterns and the, the, the rhythm of the language and the new slang and all of this kind of stuff. So I lived then in Cork for years afterwards, like my, my son went to primary school to primary school in Cork and I used to, I used to work in construction out there. So I used to kind of have all of these like colleagues who are proper Corkmen who'd, you know, delight in being able to kind of tell me all of these amazing pieces of slang and, and, and stuff like that. Uh, I mean, I loved it. So, I mean, it, I, it, it means a lot to be able to get it right. Yeah. So if you say I've gotten it right, that's a good thing. Well, a Monaghan man telling you you've got the Cork Patois right now is... <laughs> It's a whole I'll different take it. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll and I'll it. grant it without any imprimatur <laughs> from Cork to do so. Um, the other interesting, or one of the many interesting things about the story too, uh, right across the three, it's a multi-generational story, Lisa. Uh, you know, we, we have a kind of, we've really got three generations in here. Uh, if, 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 my, if my maths is kind of right, if I'm thinking of Maureen Phelan, who's, mm. I suppose, she's heading towards 70 now, really, isn't it? Uh, yeah. and, and her son, Jimmy P, who's the kind of, the linchpin drug dealer aspect of the of the whole thing, he'd be in his probably thirties or forties in the, in the. He's, he's hitting fifty. Oh, is he hitting fifty at this? He's hitting fifty at this. Yeah, Maureen, Maureen was young. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> she was. He's, he's he's hitting fifty at this point. How are that generation uh, for you in in terms of how you're portraying them across the the three novels? 
how, how, how are they coping with the changes of the decade that has just finished, 2010 through to 2020? Do you know, I find it I, I find it very interesting and I can't really speak for obviously yeah. a big sweeping kind of like here's a, here's what the, the generations above mine think. But like it's I find it very interesting talking to the likes of my Nana now who would be in her 80s. Like all of these changes are, are kind of almost accepted with a shrug. It's kind of like oh God, this isn't what I saw coming, but I suppose whatever you're happy with, you know. So there seems to be, I think anyway, a multi-generational acceptance of the way Ireland's going. Yeah, because you, you there's, there's, there's a, isn't it, is, is the conversation about the Magdalene Laundries, is that intergenerational? There's a, there's a quite a, an important conversation and discussion around that mm. whole issue in, in the book as well, isn't there? I, I think it is. I think it's something that obviously um, older women would have grown up and, and kind of, been formed in those times and and very much kind of had to had to deal with these kind of limits that were put on their lives by the Catholic Church and by the the state and stuff. So obviously it means a lot to them. Mm. But not just like for my generation too, kind of trying to figure out what that means for us to be moving into a, like a post Catholic Ireland. I mean, we're still very much formed by what the past was. Do you know? So I mean, yeah. and and the changes that we want to make as younger people as well are obviously informed by the pain that previous generations went through. So, you know, I mean, I I think it is an issue that affects everybody. I think it's an issue that interests everybody and people want to to get right, you know. ITV Studios working on a TV adaptation. You're in the area of screenwriting here as well. Adapting your own work, how difficult has it been and what stage are we at? You know, obviously COVID hit a lot of things and and kind of pushed them back. Oh God, yeah. I I can't even say what stage we're at at the moment because um, COVID really kind of did a number on things, I think, in terms of reimagining budgets and reimagining mm. this and, and suddenly the person that was, you know, hired for this particular thing is no longer available because their, um, their schedule got pushed out in another direction and oh, it's just all been a bit of a mess. But in terms of the, the adaptation for me, I've been having great crack with it. I mean, like, here's it's a story that I, that obviously I came up with so I love very much and the opportunity to go in and look at it from a different angle yeah. and kind of try and tell it again and and with, in a completely different medium, which has different kind of necessities, you go, you have to kind of learn to tell it all over again, and, and getting time to spend with the characters again. I was thinking, I was brilliant. thinking, you wouldn't want to let go of them that quickly because they've been with oh, you for God. for decades now. So, in in terms of prose, will there be a, a new Cork, a new Patois, or have you any idea <laughs> what'll happen there? Uh, in terms of the next book, is yeah. it? Uh, I don't know. I'm thinking I might try and stretch myself and kind of move away from Cork and see mm. what happens. Um, I don't know. I, I, here's the thing. Like, I have a good idea in terms of a, a, the structure of a plot. But until I start writing down characters and seeing how these people talk, that's kind of, I, I figure yeah. out the, the patois, as you said, that is correct for them. <laughs> so we don't know. Do you know I, might, I might write the great Monaghan novel. Well, we'll see. I, and I'll, I'll get, we'll get a Cork man to tell you whether the accent's <laughs> right or not. That was author Lisa McInerney on her third Cork novel with The Rules of Revelation. We'll be back with author Damon Galgut, this year's Booker winner, after this break. And so to the final part of Monday Night's Arena, where we're looking back at some of the best fiction from the past 12 months. Damon Galgut's novel The Promise is set on a farm near Pretoria, owned by the Sfart family. It follows their mixed fortunes over four decades and four deaths, all with the backdrop of the momentous history of South Africa itself from the mid-1980s onwards. When we talked with Damon Galgut in May, the promise had just earned the author a long listing for the 2021 Booker Prize, a prize he would go on to win last month, and more of that later. But first, I asked Galgut 
how he would describe the family at the centre of the novel. Uh, highly dysfunctional, I guess, um, is the simplest way to put it. They're, they're kind of very much at odds with each other. Um, Half-cracked marriage between Ma and Pa, an eldest son who is at odds with his father too, a younger daughter who's uh, slightly different to her family and a middle daughter who's kind of very into herself. Um, yeah, I mean... They're dysfunctional, but also not atypical of a great many families, I guess. <laughs> Certainly great family to have in a novel, because dysfunction is much more interesting to read about, whatever it might be to live through. It's interesting to read about in in novels. But the, the other, I mentioned about the cat among the pigeons in the case of Ma and her returning to Judaism. But the real cat among the pigeons in the novel is this promise not that she makes directly to, to Salome, but in fact that the younger daughter in the family overhears a conversation between Ma and Pa promising something for this uh, black worker in their household. Yeah, that's correct. Um, the idea for that actually came from a small conversation with a friend of mine uh, where something very similar happened in his family. His, his mother died when he was quite young, still in high school, and uh, she had made the whole family promise that they would give a, a patch of land with a really kind of scrappy house on it to the black woman who'd worked for their family for years and years and who attended her in her last illness. Uh, and in true white South African fashion, the family, although they had all promised, found ways to sort of block it from happening until quite recently. Um, and in lots of ways, that's a very South African story, very central to where we are right now. Um, so I sort of decided to, well, not to work it up into a book, but to work it through the book as a yeah. kind of thread that recurs. Yeah. Now, it, it, I'm interested that you say there that's a very South African story because it, the, the immediate question here for me was when I look at the Schwart family and this promise of the, the small bit of land to the black worker in the household, how much is this is this family in fact just a microcosm for South African society and the promises of a, of apartheid or of, of you know the of of getting rid of the abolishment of apartheid. Well, you know, clearly they're meant to, in some way, speak for white South Africans. Um, they're a mix, you know. Uh, pa is an Afrikaner. Ma is an English-speaking Jewish woman who converted to Christianity and then goes back to Judaism at the end of her life. So. Um, you know, that sort of mix, English, Afrikaans, different backgrounds, different creeds, that's that's very South African, particularly white South African, where, you know, immigrants and colonists from all over. But, uh, you know, on the other hand, you can't really say in this country that anybody speaks for everybody, if you know what I mean, which is what, one of the pleasures of writing this book was working up a sense of a chorus and, and not just for the family, with a, with a whole lot of other side characters, giving them a voice and a place. Um, no one voice can speak for this country, so it, it seems right that many voices, if you can summon them, should do the trick. Yeah, and I suppose having that mix within the family gave you a, a chance to do that. And as you say, the, the sidebar characters, if you like, who come in uh, also provide you, provided you with that uh, facility. It is very interesting, however, the four points in time that you choose uh, to give us in the telling of The Promise. We, we start in 1986 in what we might refer to as the state of emergency. I did say post-apartheid um, South Africa, but in fact, as the novel starts, we're, just, we're in, in the beginnings of transition. 
Yeah, that's correct. Um, it was high apartheid and, and apartheid in crisis, 1986. I mean, I, it's a time I remember well, a uh, very, very dark and heavy feeling over the country. But, you know, I, I, I got the idea of, of telling the story of this one family through the device of four family funerals. And then I, I thought, well, you could space those funerals out. You know, if each one happens in a different decade of South African history, you could you could sort of conjure the reigning spirit of the time, and that's that's sort of what I what I try to do. So uh, each each funeral has a different sort of mm. ethos, uh, yeah, a different a different kind of texture. At least I hope so. Yeah, they certainly do. But the reigning spirit of 1986 was 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 not a pleasant spirit. Is it difficult to write about that, or the the time that has passed in in the meantime? Does that allow you to write about it perhaps with, uh, I don't know, more facility? Well, sure. I mean, that's kind of true for all writers. Uh, if you're drawing on your own experience, um, you know, some distance is required. But then the end section of the book is set in the time of Zuna, Zuma's resignation, which is not that far hmm. back. These just happen to be the decades that sort of dominate my own life, I guess. This, this is, you know, the, the bulk of my adult life. So the memories of this time in South Africa, the, well, these times, I should say, these changing times, is, is quite vivid uh, and strong with me. This is this is the part I've lived through as a as a as an yeah. adult person. Yeah. You you chose, as you say, you had these four funerals, and the funerals are spaced out. Now, I don't know what um, South African funerals are like, and I guess we can't say there's one type of South African funeral either. But Irish funerals are certainly a time when families, in particular come together, there are large conversations, some of them pleasant and some of them full of fun, some of them difficult and full of strife. Does this, Did the South African funeral provide you with an extra layer of that or is it just funerals, funerals provide that no matter where you are? Uh, no, it's, uh, well, we certainly don't, you know, do funerals Irish style here. There's a, there's not much of a, you know, a merry wake uh, feeling to funerals, but part of the fun of this was was uh, creating a justification for each funeral sort of falling under a different religion. You know, various family members have, have followed different paths, and when when they go, they they exit uh, through the portal of a different religion, Jewish in the first section, and then Calvinist in the second, and then Catholic, and finally a sort of New Age version, which is quite dominant in this part of the world right now. Um, so I had quite a lot of uh, you know, fun with that. But of course, funerals, or at least the telling of tales about funerals, um, you're focused on the living, not the dead. I mean, mm. funerals are sad occasions. But as you as you pointed out, families come together and you, you get characters that recur who've moved on in their lives while the country's moved on. So there was a lot of scope for play and observation in that, how, how people change over 40 years. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> if, if the Schwartz family um, was dysfunctional in Pretoria in 1986, the family that we meet in 1995 it doesn't even come close to dysfunctional. It's way beyond that. It's totally disparate. Well, it's effectively destroyed. Well, totally apart, well, ripped apart. <laughs> They're not improving, put it that way. Yeah, you know, I know a lot of families like that. It's it's not uh, you know it's not just them, but they're uh, they don't know how to speak to each other or how to knit together, and yet they are connected, which is which is what 
you know, family is, I guess, maybe not at its best, but it's what family is. But in in this section in particular, you know, at the end of the first section, effectively, there's a big family row. They they go their separate ways. They have barely been in contact with each other, many of the members of the family in the meantime. Yeah, that's right. Um, and then again, of course, it's because funerals take place that people do come back together. So people who haven't spoken for years and years feel the need to come back home because somebody important is uh, mm. has died and is being buried. I got that idea, incidentally, from a from a different friend in a different conversation. He's he's a very funny guy, and he was he's the last surviving member of his family. Um, and he was telling me one day about the four funerals that he'd been to for his mother, father, brother, and sister. And although, as I say, funerals are sad events, he, he made these stories really hilarious because he just has a very acute eye for human behavior. So I, I got the idea there, listening to him, that it would be an interesting way to to show a family in decline and, and um, without really explaining all the intervening years, you could just show how much it changed for each for for them individually and together. And the then, other, of course, you throw that a bit wider, and you can see the countries countries changing too. Not least of which is um, 1995 is the year of the South African Springboks in the in the Rugby World Cup, and the the image of Nelson Mandela wearing a Springboks jersey, which even ten years previous would have been unthinkable. Yeah, totally. I mean, at the time that. Well, I don't, I don't need to tell you because it was true for you guys too. At the time that Mandela came out of jail, nobody even knew what he looked like. There was a great veil of secrecy over Mandela, particularly here in South Africa. I mean, you could go to jail if you reproduced his image or, or showed it around and so on. But uh, yeah, um, that was kind of our highest moment as a nation, I think, uh, that Rugby World Cup. And there was a sort of euphoric sense of possibility in the air that we'd overcome apartheid and we really were this miraculous rainbow nation that certainly doesn't feel that way anymore. Yeah, and, and of course, all the time, uh, to go back to the novel's title, the promise, this promise that had been made to Salome, the black worker in the family, is it going to be fulfilled? Has it been fulfilled? Is it nearly fulfilled? That's a constant there that I don't think we need to go into how it how it transpires. But it did strike me, you know, I, you begin to realise, OK, um, somebody's going to die in every section. And as you read through it, you, you realise that you give us a very big hint in the chapter title, or if you like, the section title to each of the four sections. I don't want to, well, you might be happy to say it, but the shock that I got, particularly at the death in part three of the novel, um, I, I thought Damon Galgott has been watching Game of Thrones while writing this particular novel. Um, <laughs> principal characters can disappear in uh, in the most unexpected way so quickly. That's quite a risk to take to, to get us interested in a character and then to just dispense with them. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it did It did uh, actually give me a qualm of conscience because you, you create these people and then inflict terrible fates on them. There is a, you know, you feel sort of secretly sadistic for doing it and you have to console yourself by remembering these are abstractions, in fact. But, um, you know, it was the given project when I set out that each of these people was going to die and that only one person would be left at the end. So there's a mild tension maybe as you narrow down on who that one person might be, but I guess it becomes clear at a, at a certain point. In, in this third section, we're in 2004 and uh, Mbeki is heading into, he's just about to start his second term. The problems are starting to really rear the ugly head again at this point, aren't they? Or different problems, new problems. 
Yeah, that was a that was a strange time, the Mbeki era. I mean, looking back on it, because because in one way the country was very prosperous. There was a lot of money flowing, and and there was a sense of power and possibility. Not not the euphoria of Mandela, but a much more, I guess, capitalist uh, focus on you know making money and doing well. And I think the whole Mbeki vision for South Africa was sort of trickle down. That if the the guys on the top are pumping money, that it finds its way down to the poor people at the bottom. But of course. It doesn't, um, and the gap between rich and poor widened considerably in those years. And it, it really was the beginning of a failure of vision uh, for the future. There was no plan. Mm. There still isn't to get us out of the the hole that apartheid apartheid dug us into. We're we're in a mess here, and and racial divisions and even some tribal divisions are showing themselves very strongly at the moment. We, we're we're a nation uh, very much fragmented and uh, in turmoil right now. It's not great. I, I'm sorry that you, we, we end that part of the interview, I suppose, on such a, a downbeat note, but perhaps we can receive or put us, set it back into a positive area with the nomination, uh, the Booker Long listing of The Promise. Yes, you've been there before with The Good Doctor and In a Strange Room. What's your atti- attitude to awards now? Are they important? Well, you know, it would be really ungrateful for me to <laughs> just say that I don't care about The Booker. It's made an enormous uh, difference to my life. Mm. Um, on the other hand, you know, uh, are they objective reflections of the best book of the year or even the best group of books of the year? No, no. A lot of stuff gets overlooked and uh, sometimes unworthy books make it onto the list. But in a general sense, um, you know, they support the cause of books and reading, and that's a cause I do believe in. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've got to say they are important. Anything that keeps people's attention on what novels can do, what wonderful things they are, how they redeem us from the squalid realities of lived existence. Um, yeah, anything that supports that project, I'm behind, I believe in. The Promise by Damon Galgut did indeed go on to win the Booker Prize. That's our lot for this evening. Join me tomorrow at 7 here on Arena where we'll be looking at some of the musical highlights of the show this year, including our tribute to the legendary piper Paddy Maloney. And Arena will be back tomorrow evening at 7 when those musical highlights will also feature an interview with Jamie Bernstein, daughter of composer Leonard Bernstein, celebrating 60 years since the release of the film West Side Story.